Thanks everybody for joining the Blind Ambition with Jack Kelly. I'm Rick Chen and I have Joe Gillespie with me. Happy to be here. Great to meet y'all. Thanks, Joe. So Joe Gillespie is an angel investor and a startup advisor. He specializes in counseling early and mid-stage startups on recruiting, compensation, benefits, company culture, and HR. Uh, All topics which are very popular among the blind community. Uh, Joe has more than eight years of experience in tech recruiting. Recently, he was the head of technical recruitment at Robinhood, where in four and a half years, he helped grow the company from about 75 people to more than 4,000 and was part of the go-to-market teams for the U.S. and U.K. expansions. He was also a technical recruiting leader focused on roles in infrastructure, data center, hardware engineering, and more at Facebook and Oculus VR. All right, just to jump into it. how, from how many people to how many people, Joe? Uh, so I think I was, uh, was I think I was 74, 75 uh, when I joined Robinhood. And yeah, at the peak, it was nearly 4,500. Um, the, the recruiting team itself, I think, was about five people. Um, and at the at the peak, the recruiting org was, I think, almost 300, uh, wow. which was, you know, it, it was a lot of growth uh, year over year. You know, going from a, an onboarding class of two, three people to, you know, I think one of the classes was actually over 50 or maybe a bit more. Um, so it was, it was pretty neat to see. And similarly, at, at a at Facebook, uh, I think when I joined, it was roughly 6,000 people. And, you know, four years later, it was, I think, 23,000. So some substantial rate of growth. So as I used to have all brown hair. Just to, <laughs> Well, I'm not going to make any comments if you see my feelings. So I'm just going to keep quiet on that one. So how was it like, let's say with Robin Hood, just to scale? Is, was it just working around the clock, especially at the beginning when you didn't have a whole team? You know, once you have 300 recruiters, I guess, yeah, then, then it makes more sense. But w- how did you manage that? As much strategy as possible, but a lot of brute force. Um, so, it, yeah, I mean, there was, it was a startup environment, hyper growth. Uh, I think when I joined, we had about a million users. Uh, one product we hadn't even shipped options or crypto um, and we had to do a lot of we were in you know build mode and it was yeah some of the I I, I could say that not all my weekends were free um, and I was typically you know talking to candidates at, at any point in time I think I uh I recall some candidates that I was closing early days when I was on a vacation in Hawaii and it was like, uh, I definitely enjoyed that trip much more after they had accepted. When you talk about brute force recruiting, like what does that mean, right? Like we've all gotten, um, you know, mass emails from roles that are, you know, interesting to just absolutely not interesting at all. Um, what is like the logic behind that? And, and, and 
how do you go about actually the the day-to-day tactical aspects of recruiting yeah so that's a good question so and, and to clarify brute force for me is me as an individual going brute force um i as a when i was recruiting i would i was not the recruiter and i'm not the recruiter that would build you know list of a thousand or scrape a list and just send it out um i laugh when i get you know recruiter emails that say hey joe we've got this staff engineering role for you and i'm like you probably didn't look at my profile at all right uh so it was really more about uh intentional reach out, but it was a lot, right? So high quality, high volume, not an easy combination to, to do. Um, also working really closely with the team that we had. And as we grew, continued to kind of lean into each other of like how we support each other, um, you know, expanding on who's doing what. So, you know, a uh, a coordinator might in some large orgs just do scheduling whereas a coordinator uh on on the teams that that i was working on were involved in you know scheduling interview training you know helping to put together different uh hiring processes and policies and delivering them out um similarly with sourcing you you know our sourcers weren't focused on like one role. They would actually go through like the prioritized list of roles. So, you know, we wanted to be as an intentional as possible, but really ensuring that the principal, like staying principled in that we're working on the most important roles for the company um, with the resources that we had and being very candid on like what we could give full service to quote unquote, meaning that we're going to actively engage and activate candidates um, and, bring them through to the lower priority roles that which uh, we would not be able to provide full service. And with that, it was actually a lot of like, I spent a good amount of time uh, working with the engineers and the engineering team on how they could become great recruiters, right? Uh, To the point even where they were sourcing on some of the lower priority roles that we couldn't source for and find candidates, it would be like, hey, you know, here's how you work LinkedIn recruiter. Uh, here's how you check in on candidates. Uh, here's how you can frame some uh, reach outs and pre-screens. And, you know, we were, it was really a, a all-in team. It wasn't just, hey, recruiting, go do this. It was really like the company itself was all in on, on building a pretty awesome team. Yo, I haven't heard that before. So was it because it was in such growth mode that there really wasn't much of a choice that you didn't have enough actual recruiters so that you had to go to the engineers and say, all right, help us out here, put aside maybe some of the tech work you're doing. So when you said, you know, the help, I just assume like they'll find leads, like who's your buddy at another company? Can you call your friend up and tell him to come over? But this was legit sourcing and getting, getting people, huh? Yeah, I think there's there's value in creating an organization that has a recruiting mindset versus uh, and a shared ownership in the success and failure of something, uh, whether it's recruiting or product or you know really anything. 
um, staying aligned in like what's going to get us to the company mission or goals uh, fastest. Um, and th this actually was, you know, even at the leadership level where it was very encouraged. So um, I definitely embrace that philosophy of uh, trying to have a lot of empathy for cross-functional teams, but also how can I help on non-recruiting and non-people things? Uh, and on the flip side, how can others help? Did that even continue once you had like 300 recruiters? You still had that same mindset that we're all going to help each other when the, when the need arises? I like to imagine so. Um, it may not have been as strong, but it was definitely still alive. I mean, so you're, you're saying this word often, sourcing. I, I'd love to dive deeper there. You know, what does sourcing entail? You know, are you literally creating profiles of ideal candidates to like match against? Is it just kind of a, a crazy search string on LinkedIn recruiting? What, what does that look like? <laughs> yeah, um, all of that. So okay. <laughs> sourcing, sourcing can be as strategic and tactical as, as depending on the individuals. Um, it goes into also dependent on like the type of roles of whether it's super niche, very senior, you know, or just very general. Like if you were to type in like a mid-level Python engineer. Um, so there's sourcing is involved in the way of like understanding the role first. So working with the hiring team, who do we need to hire? and why, what are they going to do? What's their growth path? How are they going, like, you know, why would they wanna join this team? What are the technical challenges? All these are kind of the inputs as like, the sourcer is going to have to like, digest that and be able to convey that to an engineer in initial uh, conversation, right? Ideally. And then it's also about building this like model profile. Um, this could go into, as deep as like market mapping, right? Instead of saying we want somebody from a company, we could go in and say, we want folks that have experience working on these types of things, which could be at any company, um, just specific teams within the companies. So for instance, uh, if we were gonna look at, you know, Microsoft has a huge uh, employee pool, right? Um, but we knew that the skill set that we needed was specifically in Azure, mm. right? We might target just Azure and not really go after Xbox engineers or Office, et cetera. So it's also about like, um, so it's building this kind of target of like, who do we hone in on first? And as we uh, calibrate on that with the hiring team of maybe oh, we need more of this and less of this skill set, um, you know, iterating as, as, as needed in order to find the right person. I wonder, so, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, well, and then there's that, we haven't even gotten to really engagement and then it's, all right, well, finding these folks, uh, making a personalized reach out for them, uh, talking about maybe some of the work that they done in the past, maybe they were at a conference, 
maybe they've done some open source contributions, some publications, um, and you know, inviting them for a conversation uh, to to chat and learn more about whatever the role that we're hiring for is. Um, and then from there, you kind of, if they're, you know, you have the call and if they're open to it, then they continue the conversation. I always wonder from a recruiter who's outside, I've never worked in-house, is it easier or harder if you're that in-house person at a Robinhood or a Meta Facebook so that people say, yeah, I want to work there. So then you, you, you get, if you put an ad out or you reach out that they're more likely, or do you have the same headaches someone from the third party outside would get and try to find somebody and sell them on this on the company? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, I think there's, uh, both can be successful. It really just depends on how much of a partnership the company has with any external agencies um, versus their in-house team. Like an in-house team is gonna curate the voice of the company uh, ideally very well. Uh, what, what I've tried to do also in the past whenever I've also had to work with vendors is ensure that that voice is consistent with what's already coming out in-house. Um, so that way, and we've had, you know, I've worked with external uh, agencies that hired amazing people and had great response rates. And it was really about like the time and partnerships spent with them so that they were almost like uh, a part of the team, so to speak. Uh, I think where, you know, agencies can sometimes have a more challenging, uh, um, you know, approach to finding candidates is when they don't have that strong partnership. And it's just more of like a hiring manager is like, hey, here's the JD, go find me some folks and let me know when they're ready. Um, is, you know, really not setting anyone up for success, which is uh, potentially one of the reasons why, you know, there is this concept of like in-house versus external um, because both can provide the value. For the folks on blind, given that they're very tech centric and there are a lot of layoffs in that space, kind of fear about what's going to happen next, would you suggest they should go directly to companies, go to recruiters, a little bit of both? Like for the folks who are that who are earning a nice living, maybe they're comfortable, but you have this uncertainty out, out there. Like what, what 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 would you suggest? Should they start looking? Should they wait? Should they move? Should they not move? And I know it's not fair to really ask that because everyone's an individual and it's hard to predict, you know, to say what everybody should do. But what's your feel for given the market, what it's going to look like, what's going to happen, maybe what any advice you should get, you want to give to people what to do next? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting time to say the least. Um, thinking about where you are in your career and where you want to go in your career is really uh, can be really helpful before you start randomly searching for a job. Um, I think some of the indicators of like why you might want to search for a job is if you've uh, if you feel like the team or the work that you're contributing to is not core to the company and maybe that company has signaled that 
there's some headwinds, right? I, I think it's it's safe to say that a lot of companies right now are reevaluating not just how many people they'll hire, but how if if they need to, uh, if they actually need to like reduce their workforce. Um, you know, that's that's pretty prominent in the in the in the industry right now. So it's like looking at am i or asking yourself like am i working on a core piece of the company if the answer to that is no then you know i would put that as like one step closer to like non non-essential to the company if they were to make any cuts um i'd also look at it as like am i enjoying my work am i happy do i like the people that i work with is my manager supporting me in the way that i hope to be supported finding a great manager is not always easy and i think in some ways it's worth it's worth more than you know a arbitrary you know 10% uh you know increase in your tc that you might get from uh, uh getting a new job so if you're not totally happy in your role if you feel like you know you your team or you and your own performance might be on the chopping block at some point if they were to make a cut start exploring up opportunities there's still a ton of opportunities out there just to call out i think like what's what's being put out is layoffs everybody's shrinking their hiring hiring freezes but in reality there's so many companies hiring um for really any role at this point i mean even if you look at who gets cut on on a uh, layoffs first typically is like recruiting and marketing um and then like non-essential you know opex uh roles so but there's still companies that are hiring marketing there's still companies that are hiring recruiters and operations and and what have you so think about the company that you like are you a mission driven person are you totally tc like the highest bidder i think on is there are people out there that don't care about the work they just care about the money and don't waste your time on like mission driven companies that aren't going to pay well right i think there's enough information out there where uh you know if you're not going to get a netflix salary <laughs> then you know don't don't waste your time interviewing there um thinking about how to like so for me i'm i'm very mission driven right i joined facebook early on with like this idea of connecting the world when i was in college it was cool uh, you know we got to have friends overseas that i had met um in university robin hood is the david versus goliath uh you know bringing finance to everyone um and you know every company i've, I've got a, a new adventure coming up soon uh that i'm pretty excited about and very mission aligned um for me i don't always go to the the highest tc in fact i think i i took a pay cut in like every single one of the jobs that i've had over the last 10 years so um but it's more of because i have a little bit more of like delayed gratification right so do you need the cash or are you going to optimize for the equity if your company is offering equity right thinking that most tech companies offer some sort of like token or or equity or both
that's a lot of to impact, but it makes a lot of sense because what I find out, and I, I would advise candidates that I deal with as well, is that you can get a job that pays more, but if you're not happy and your boss kind of sucks, it's not worth it, especially after taxes. Then you realize like for X amount, why do you have to deal with the headaches, a bad boss, you know, and, and the, it's, it's not really worth it at the end of the day. I love the call out on taxes. It's not worth it. Like if you were, if you do the math, like it's cool to say like, Hey, I went from 170 to 200, but if you actually do the math on like that extra 30 grand on that higher tax bracket broken out into like your biweekly paycheck, if you live in a state, especially like California or, or New York, but even in like low tax states, it's still federal, like it's still a substantial amount that you're not getting. And I used to, I used to put it into context of like, hey, this might be a, an extra bar tab. Um, you know, at the current rate of inflation. Right, because when, like when you kind of look, run the numbers, it's not that much. <laughs> Rick, yeah. it's so funny because like you, you, you hear like 200, you know, 170, 200, oh, it's 30 grand. But then you start looking at, all right, is it really that 30 grand? Not so much. And then also, if you're doing it, you don't really like your boss and you don't like this. It's like, why? why? It just makes sense. Yeah. And it's like, and, and also in this world of like, do you want to be pure remote? Do you want hybrid? Mm -hmm. Do you want in office? So there's so many things to consider outside of actual cash. Like, I think there's a, you know, basic need, right? What's your standard of living? Here's your floor. But odds are you're not going to get a job that's going to give you a cash differential that's going to like take you from living in a, you know, a studio with, with four roommates to getting a house in Atherton and, and a Lambo out front, right? So that's typically going to be more of like the long-term thinking. And also like, so there's, there's the monetary piece uh, between cash and, and equity. But then there's also the career, right? Like, I also encourage people to like, think more in your career. So if you're early to mid-level career, any job, really, it's okay for you to like, go into what some might call is like, more risky. But I could debate that all day long against FANG and, and seed stage, um, and anything in between. But it's, it's one of these things of, in if you if you just think in four year increments, which is like what most grants are going to be, where will you be career wise four years from now is a very important question that I I challenge myself with. Like, are you going to be, uh, you know, going, going to a large bank company? company? You might go you might from go like like E four to E five, right? Maybe on your way to E six but maybe not. Whereas you can go to a small, you know, 20, 100, 500 person private company and have exponential growth, right? And come out of there four years later, uh, joining as what an equivalent of an E4, but come out of there as staff, senior staff, senior manager, and I think these are some of the things that get lost in like the hype for, for TC. Is outside of tech, because my, you know, I, I place people on Wall Street, and I would advise them similarly to what you're talking about, is that if let's say you go to a, a relatively smaller company, 
as let's let's say a smaller hedge fund, but a good you know good quality hedge fund compared to let's say Morgan Stanley. Yeah, Morgan Stanley might sound better when you tell your family or friends or Goldman Sachs compared to this hedge fund no one heard of, but yet you're going to have like five different jobs there at one time, not even kind of progressive, because you go to Morgan Stanley, Goldman, Deutsche Bank, Credit Suisse, you're going to be in your lane, you're a trader doing equity derivatives trading, and that's it. That's all you know. But if you're in, let's say, some hedge fund or what have you, and you're doing 10 different things, you learn so much. So in two, three years, you have a lot of experience to offer. And then I think it opens up more, you know, uh, you know, more job opportunities moving forward. And it sounds like you feel the same way in tech, that by doing that, you become an expert in a whole lot of things that's really valuable. Yeah, you become more valuable. So you're building your, your toolkit, right, or your tool belt. Uh, you become more valuable for the broader market, but also for the company that you're at, right? So it's like, if you're doing great work uh, and you know all the ins and outs of like, you know, a broad spectrum of, you know, what's going on in your organization, that has value, right? Um, now to competitors, that also has value, yeah. uh, which is one of the reasons why you, you, you see some of these like early Facebook engineers go to like this what looks like a risky startup and then it becomes Airbnb, right? And then early Airbnb folks go to what looks like a risky startup and now it's Figma. Um, and, 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 you know, I've got no buy-in in any of these companies, but like uh, it's this interesting concept where people trade the sense of stability and perceived risk um, and really sacrifice their career potential oftentimes because if you go to this big company, you're gonna learn some cool stuff, right? I mean, even when the era that I joined Facebook, uh, it was still relatively small where I got some broad exposure. Uh, that's not, that's still available, but it's just harder to, to get at a larger company like that. I wonder, Rick, Joe, do you find it that maybe people make a mistake in that they fall into this trap where they pick a job with a company because it's a marquee name so that there might be better opportunities, even more money, better growth, but they feel it's safe because I'm working at Amazon, I'm working at Apple, I'm working at, you know, whatever. And maybe they're selling themselves short because they feel there's safety in that veneer of the type of company but they might be better off doing something else. Do you see that happen? Yeah, and, and it's so different on the individual level because, you know, do they need the premier benefits that these companies offer for, you know, ABC personal reasons? Mm -hmm. Is it really the brand, right? It's kind of the, you know, do you, do you have to have the BMW? Is like a Toyota just not satisfactory? Uh, but then there's also like, the Teslas, right? If we're gonna go on this automotive analogy, joining Tesla like 15 years ago was probably a scary, terrible idea. And now it's like, everybody wants to have a Tesla. Um, well, yeah. right, wait, wait, can we talk about one thing about <laughs> Tesla? Just a complete side note. Did you just hear that he had twins with 
a woman who was like a senior executive of one of his companies and it just came out. I did not hear that. Dude, I can't but I feel get like o- there's new stories coming. I can't get over daily. this guy. I just, my mind is blown. He has like 10 kids now. <laughs> I just had twins through, I don't know, through this executive at, I want to say, it wasn't SpaceX, but I, I think Neuralink perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I've got two kids. I can't imagine. <laughs> and, I can't imagine more. And it has to be half a, <laughs> And this is from half a dozen different women. You know, I mean, no, no, no judgment on my end, but I, I'm. I think I'm feeling pretty good with two. <laughs> right. This is this is what I, I don't mean to take you know you know a diversion from it, but it just it just I, I you know I saw it over the weekend. I'm like, this is nuts. This guy, I can't. This this is this. He's like a cartoon character. I mean, this is not real. Well, I, I think it's also like thinking about like from a career perspective, right? Of brands come and go, right? Tesla was like the yeah. it at some point. Amazon was the it. It still is in many ways. It depends on where folks are at in like their career cycles, right? If you if you don't have any brand name on your on your resume, that's okay. Like some people really want that big brand on there just to kind of check the box and feel like they're marketable. But I think uh, especially nowadays, there's so much information out there that like you can you can make yourself marketable. Uh, without having a brand name, right? And these are things like, you know, your contributions to open source projects that that you care about that also align to different companies that you're interested in. Um, you know, just one of the things that's been harder over the past couple of years is also networking and conference uh, interactions, but that's also a healthy way to, to go about it. Um, but it's really like, there's cycles in career and it, it highly depends on where you're at. If you're a later stage and you're like, hey, I don't wanna work my butt off, right? Like I don't wanna work 50, 60, 80 hours a week. I wanna have my weekends free. I wanna take as much PTO as I can. That's perfect. Like there's companies that will allow you to do that. I won't call them out here, um, but they typically aren't super small. Um, right. But if you if you do aspire to like someday be uh, you know an expert in your field or a head of a specific department or contributing to some technical um, you know uh, project that you find fascinating and will make the world better, then you should also go do that. Uh, so it, it, it's, it again goes into this kind of play of like marquee companies will sell you on slightly higher cash, liquidity on your equity, uh, and very, very strong uh, cushy benefits. Um, you know, having worked at a lot of different places in my career, you know, from making my own you know, salad for lunch every day to having breakfast, lunch, and dinner at like 20 restaurants available to me at all hours of the day. Um, I can tell you that I'm still doing fine with making my own lunch, you know. So just pause, take a breath a little bit. 
Um, also, if you have a recruiter that's pressuring you to make a decision, ask yourself why they're pressuring you so much to make that decision. So I, I want to dig in there. Why would a recruiter pressure someone to 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 make a decision quickly? You know, we we hear about like exploding offers. That's very common in tech. Um, these like high pressure, high like sales tactics. Um, yeah. Where do they come from? Where where what what's the strategy? What's behind that strategy? I mean, I think it's perspective of the leadership that's putting those in place. Right. I, I, I'm not saying an infinite runway to decide on something. I think there's a, there's a benefit to not rushing an offer, right? Like I, I actually look at, at recruiting more of mediation than sales, uh, which is maybe a contrarian way to, to think about it. Um, because yeah, typically you're going to have that, like, all right, we need an offer in three days. Um, right. Even when I joined a previous company, that was what I was told. It's like, Hey, we give three day offers. I'm like, yeah, I don't do that. Um, I give a reasonable amount of time that we work out by candidate, right. Of like, we have an aligned agreement. Cause also like one of the things is you bring on people, uh, you're also hiring them to help make decisions for the company, ideally, right. In some small or big way. And if they're unable to make a decision in weeks, then there's also a signal that that might not be the right match and there's still that, that doubt. But, but to the, the question of why do we have sales tactics? I think it's just the leadership. Like on, my, on, on any team that I've led, I typically have not pushed for any like exploding offers. You know, if it's getting dangled for, you know, you know, one, two weeks, we align on like, hey, this offer is going to be, you know, no longer valid after this coming Friday or something. And, you know, it's a reasonable amount of time that you don't feel rushed. Um, another reason why they might be putting pressure on is limited headcount, which is actually something that is potentially very real in today's market with all the freezes and more intentional hiring, right? It's not just infinity, like let's keep them rolling. Uh, in regards to like how much headcount teams can hire for. So I think that, that it is a little bit more plausible to, to anticipate more uh, companies having timelines because maybe they only have one headcount, but there's like two or three candidates in queue that they also are, you need to keep on the line in case you, this candidate A declines, right? So there's a couple factors that, that come top of mind. Rick, I could give a, a different perspective from the agency side. Right. So for the folks in what, so what happens is this, I, I'm going to, I'm going to get a lot of hate from other recruiters, but I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, right, let's scoop. I love it. Yeah. Is it. It really goes down to the dollars because let's say, you know, um, you place somebody and there's a 20%, 25% commission uh, on their base annual salary. Let's just make it round numbers. Right that's a lot of money and you want to place that person. So if you find someone, let's say Rick is like really good for the job and you, you, you know, I feel really confident you can get the job. I could see a recruiter twisting arms because he feels, well, I don't get him in there. Somebody else is get, 
you know, someone else in there and I'm going to lose this and I, I'm already looking how I'm going to spend this money. So it does. And what happens like in, in the agency side and the reason I'm bringing it up too, because the people on blind are going to do both, like go directly to the company and, and use the services outside recruiters is that, yeah, there's a, you, you, you eat what you kill. You know, there's a pressure, you know, you're on a commission basis and you want to make deals because you want to get paid. And if you know someone is good, you can place them. You're going to, you're going to really push hard. Conversely, if you speak to someone and you know they're not good, you're going to give the brush off. And that's why a lot of people get ticked off with recruiters because like I dealt with this person and they just blew me off. Because instead of just saying to them, hey, Rick, you know what? I don't place communication directors. I can't really help you too much. Right. And then you go, oh, okay, I get it. It's, instead of just the blow off. And now you're like, Jack's a jerk, man. I hate him. He's, he's an ass. Why? He never got back to me. So they don't really explain it. So yeah, so so there's a I think there's a dollars and cents element that you just want to push and get that person placed, and you don't have to. Yeah, I love this, that perspective. Right, it's it's reality. It's it's it's. And that is one of the things where because uh, even there's this there's this uh, misconception that recruiters in house get paid by hire, which is at least uh, I haven't worked mm -hmm. at and I don't know of any off the top of my head. I haven't seen that either. In, internally where you're making you know your pay like in-house recruiters are on salary and equity package just like any other internal employee and even from a bonus perspective uh teams that i've led and been in performance uh reviews with even on broader orgs um you know it's not like oh it's only about the hiring. Oftentimes the bonus is like the, there's like a, an aspirational target that like, Hey, we need to get to, but then it's all the qualitative things of like, you know, good candidate experiences. Did we, you know, how are we partnering with the teams where we hire, like really focusing on like bringing in the right people uh, versus the number of people. Uh, and, and that is an interesting dynamic between in-house and, and external. But I do notice, Joe, on resumes from HR people, they'll brag, hey, we cut down on the usage of, you know, outside recruiters by X percent. We've saved X amount of money because we didn't have to go out to recruiters. And it's really, it's an interesting thing to watch because I, so I, I, I didn't feel that they get paid extra, but it was almost like, hey, I'm doing my job well. I don't have to use these outside recruiters. You know, I got it. I got it. I got it covered. Yeah, and and I mean, from a look from a pure opex cost savings perspective, typically an in-house team that performs well is going to provide more value than an external team. Now, there's a whole lot of caveats that I'll call out, right? Of like, there's a lot of external teams that specialize in certain roles and levels, which add a lot of value and expedite the time to hire. Um, but they're also really expensive, right? And it's also this dynamic of uh, building the internal voice and then how you're going to partner with any external partners. Um, you know, for me, I always enjoyed partnering with uh, agencies that are, that, that very much want to like be a part of the team, even though they're, they have like, you know, four or five other clients, what have you. But there's definitely the, you know, some of the big agencies out there where it's like, 
we have 85 clients and we're going to place this person at one of them. Uh, right. And it's more of a, a numbers game versus like a, uh, you know, a strong partnership with the, the smaller number of companies that they work with. I mean, taking a candidate's perspective, I mean, can we use that business model to our advantage? Is it more efficient? Is it more, you know, helpful for us if we work with a outside recruiter or recruiting agency because they are motivated to kind of be our best advocate or, you know, is there no difference at all? Oh, that's a good question. I, it, I would say it depends. Um, so when I, when I've worked with agencies, I'm the direct connection, right? So I'm still filtering candidates. Now at some companies that don't have a talent team uh, and they're just like, it's the hiring manager that's just partnering with, which is a lot of the time actually, um, then you could have an in, but then you're, you typically don't have an in-house team to work with anyways. Um, so that, that would be my initial take on that, but it's a, definitely an interesting perspective. I, I don't think it'll help much at like the larger companies, um, but definitely, you know, might be an advantage for the smaller companies. You just also have to be, I mean, it, also if, I think for in-house or, or external, how you connect with a recruiter is important, uh, right? If the, because if they, if you're amicable and, you know, are, are considerate and have like a, an approach that would have people that would want to work with you, like that recruiter might actually go out of their way to like, help you find something internal or external. Like I've actually like had candidates where I'm internal, we reject them. And I actually have like, you know, covertly flipped them to like, you know, folks across other teams within the company that like, Hey, check this, this person out. They, they're really cool. They might be a fit for, you know, your team over here. Hey, Rick, for the people on blind, what do you get a sense of? Do you get a sense that they want to move or they just want to be prepared to move? Yeah, so we did a survey with the recent kind of like layoffs and hiring freezes. Um, there is, it's, it's about a one-third, one-third, one-third split. So one-third in the sense that they were not in the market to begin with. And so they're, they're, they're happy where they are. Um, they're optimizing work-life balance, work style, whether that's remote or hybrid or even in-house, uh, on-premise for some folks. Then we have one-third of folks that are actively searching and have ramped up their urgency because of the news that they're seeing, whether they have fears about their, their current job or they see like, hey, now is actually a great time to search because, you know, there's so many recruiters that are like actively combing blind They're actively combing LinkedIn. Um, you know, we have like these crowdsource lists and they're, they're reading these news articles about how recruiters are just scouring these lists. And so they're thinking, wow, now's a good time to job hunt, right? And then the final one third is 
they're looking, but they're a bit nervous, right? Like they're, they're running a little scared. Uh, and so it's really interesting because, you know, when you look at that breakdown, it, it means two thirds of folks are actively searching for a job right now, right? And we see these news reports mm-hmm. of hiring freezes and layoffs, but in reality, there's still two or more than two jobs that are open for mm-hmm. the people that are looking, right? And in some industries, it's even higher. Um, it, it, and so I, I, I think it's very hard for folks to reconcile um, all the headlines that they see and kind of their lived experience and and, you know, to, to Joe's point, everyone's circumstance is also different, right? So you're at different stages of life. You're prioritizing different things in your career, right? We have yeah. some folks that are just TC chasers, right? For, <laughs> so it's kind of dirty though. There's TC chasers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like it's, an, it's a reality, right? Yeah. I mean, right. especially we used to, I mean, if you're a general software engineer, right? Uh, it's arguably the most commoditized role in the industry, right? So, I mean, I've seen it where candidates have upwards of like 15 to 20 offers at once, which first wow. gives me anxiety about wait, wait, wait. how many I, interviews that that's they have to deal. 20, how, how do they have the time to even get 20 offers? I mean, they, they literally took like, two weeks of PTO and just interviewed like really? where I would talk, like they would do our onsite after they finished another company's onsite. This was like, it was all remote still. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it all, it actually like in remote hiring, it kind of optimized how companies could do scheduling <laughs> flexibility, but it also optimized for candidates. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it, that's not the norm. I think yeah. the on average uh, for, for SWE roles, it's not uncommon for folks to have, you know, three to five different offers. Um, but but the advice that I would give when selecting a job is the same, uh, similar to like it, when you leave a job, right? Like the role that you're going to, is it core to the company? If it's not, even if it's a big company, your idea of stability is, you know, arguably lower then maybe it should be. Um, and that's why it's like, you know, there is value of like, there's a lot of startups, like after each recession, there's massive winners and, and companies that are wildly successful that come out of, you know, downturns. And so there is this opportunity where those seed A early stage companies, uh, while they may not have billions, they have, you know, two years of runway, 18 months of runway, which is pretty healthy. And, uh, you know, you're going to get to contribute a lot during those couple of years. And then, you know, ideally you're out of the recession and the company raises another round. So there's like, is your role going to contribute meaningfully to the company? And then there's also like, uh, the longevity of the company itself, right? Uh, especially if you're going uh, early, early stage, which I'm all for. I mean, there, there's one question that I'm, I'm dying to ask. It's when folks move to a larger company, 
oftentimes there's this feeling of being lowballed or down leveled, right? You're, you're like a senior at one place and then you get the offer and you're surprised when it's not senior, right? When you're just a, a regular standard, you're an SE2 maybe. Um, how, sh- how does that happen, right? In terms of leveling, is there anything that, you know, folks might be able to do to kind of better communicate where they where they currently stand or is it about interview performance like how, how does that phenomenon happen yeah um interview so interview performance is is important but it's also in like overall presentation and how you convey yourself right if if you're a let's just use the the Google Facebook kind of uh, decoder leveling key. If you're an E4 and you're saying, I'm an E5, a lot of the times it's not, I can code faster. A lot of the times it's like, I work really well cross-functionally. I can lead in some of these decision makings or I contributed uh, meaningfully to this technical decision here and oh, when we were behind schedule, we, you know, I helped get us out of that doing by ABC thing. So it's it's a little bit more of like the softer skills. Oh. Um, and so I think it's understanding like where you are in the careers ladder. And I mean, levels.fyi is readily available, but also then reading into like, what does that level actually mean? Because it's not just like people get promoted because they've been there for, X amount of time, right? E5 is arguably a terminal level uh, for for majority of, of people. Um, and that's okay because that provides a really good life. Right. Uh, but understanding the nuances of what is expected at that next level is going to be really important of that you're conveying that and it's getting through to the interviewer and the hiring team that you are at you are there, right? Because uh, otherwise, they're always going to go conservatively. Oh, and, and and what what do you make of those like promises of oh well, I, I understand it, it's it's less than you 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 expected, but you know, in, in six months or in twelve months when we have our next cycle, we'll we'll get you right where you want to be. Like, I, what, what yeah, do you make so, of that? <laughs> well, one. I try not to focus on title. So I'm very, I'm not title centric. Um, Even when I had my own companies, I think I had sales on my business card. Um, And like, I'm I'm kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum. Like I actually don't care about title. Uh, So I would encourage like, don't make it so much about the title. Is it going to one, meet your expectations compensation wise? Oftentimes it may not uh, because bigger companies have pretty strict bands. Two, if you're not getting what you need, whether it's title, whether it's compensation, um, make the decision. Like you can just walk away. I can tell you that I've uh, post post Facebook, I've had offers from multiple fan companies. Some up-leveled me, some made me on par and some down leveled me. Um, and I 
Like, I'm not going to say they were wrong for doing any of those, but it informed on how I was going to make my decision. Right? Right. Um, based on, like, I made my decision more on, like, mission uh, and where my career will go and are my minimum expectations met? Those are kind of like my three qualifiers. Right? Keep in mind that I've got like two kids at home. So it's, you know, gone are the days where I could bunk with three roommates in a, in a studio. Right. Hey, Joe, is it, and Rick, have you noticed from, let's say, placing people on Wall Street, it's, it's okay to haggle and negotiate. Is it the same way in tech, Joe, where if let's say you don't get the level you want that it's not, you, you can just go back and forth or it's just a lot of times here's what it is and maybe just, just incremental changes. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, so you should always negotiate the worst that they could say yeah. is no, um, unless you're totally obscene about it, they're not going to pull your offer for asking, mm-hmm. is there anything else that we can do? Um, right. And, and you can also get creative in what you can ask for again, worst they could say is no. So if you're thinking about, um, Hey, I want more equity or, Hey, I want more cash. Cool. You can also ask for a sign on bonus. Some companies do that. Some don't, uh, I've seen it where I'm expecting, you know, the candidate's expecting a child and the parental leave isn't exactly on par with what I currently have. Can you negotiate anything there? Hmm. Um, Like working, like, hey, we require two days a week. I live in Kansas. I don't really, but like if I did, I won't be able to go into the SF office two days a week. You know, can this be totally remote? So there's, you can think beyond just the, the cash and equity side of things, but definitely negotiate. Got it. Now I, with I, recruiters, you're kind of like the canary in the coal mine. Any thoughts like what you what you might we see in the next three, six months? I know you don't have a crystal ball, but any sense? Um, it feels like we're we're halfway through this. Um, I, I think there's, we'll see on how the next quarterly earnings go. And as we kind of go into like finishing Q3 and, and Q4. Um, but I don't think we're, I don't think we're done. Got it. Uh, but I, 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 appreciate- I do, I do also think that we're going to be hiring. Like a lot of companies are still going to hire there. I look at, especially, especially within tech, at least, I, I, there's still going to be higher demand than supply and a good amount of the roles. And so don't be fearful. I'd encourage folks not to be fearful if they're going to look for a job, um, that they have to take the first job offer that they get. Um, like, you know, write down your principles of what you need out of your next role and what you hope for and try to find a spot that fills those. Got it. I, I appreciate the advice, Joe. Like, it, it's very tactical, right? Like, starting from your first principles of what matters most for you in your career 
and, and really using that to guide your search from start to finish, right? From the companies that you're looking for, if you're mission focused, if you're an optimizer for benefits or work life, uh, to actually negotiating the finer details, right? And, and, and being satisfied with the offer you take. I, I really appreciate that advice, Joe. I mean, hopefully a recruiter is also giving you this advice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I definitely try to, like for any candidate that I, that I speak with, right? Because um, again, I look at this as, I, I see recruiting in-house at least as definitely more mediation of right. ensuring that we're like a, you know, an in-house recruiter is helping find the right person for the team uh, and really just kind of mediating that from both on the internal side, there's a lot of things that happen internally of like, you know, nitpicky hiring managers and encouraging like, hey, what's a must have, what's a nice to have, what's teachable and what do what's a domain expertise that they have to come in with um, to also with the candidate, right? Of, hey, you have 12 offers from everything from seed to public. Which ones are you actually interested in yeah. and why? Right. Right. So there's like, ideally, you know, be okay with like having those conversations with your recruiter. Um, because I've had thousands of those conversations with candidates that I've interacted with over the years. And, you know, sometimes it's meant that they come aboard and sometimes it's meant that they take another offer. No, I, I appreciate that counsel and that coaching. Thanks for coming on the show, Joe. Joey, thank you. This is great advice. I think this is great advice and and it's so timely because as we're talking about, we're hopefully halfway through this weird dynamic that we're in. And yeah, people just need to hear like advice, what to do, how they should look at things. Should they look, should they not look, should they go in-house, should they have an agency recruiter? So these are what they're thinking and and you articulated everything so well. Even, Even the stuff not recruiting, I like the advice you gave about if you want to stay, make sure you're indispensable, irreplaceable, and you're in a job that's needed and valuable. Awesome. Perfect. It, no, it was, a, it was a fun conversation. I could keep talking for <laughs> hours, hours more. That's it for the Blind Ambition. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.